Max Stirner, at one point praised by the likes of Karl Marx and others, an idea that may spook you, that the self is the most significant entity. But what does that mean? How does that work out pragmatically? And why do philosophies matter to the everyday person? Egoism, this week. Philosophers. Philosophers. Ooh, that almost sounds like I said the real word there for a second. Almost. Um, yeah, so... This week will be a little bit different. We're going to explore a philosophy. Wow. Only, Imagine a show where... <laughs> it only took 123 episodes before we got here. Um, but there's a lot of groundwork needed to be laid. Um, and uh, All those episodes were strictly necessary to get to this point. Absolutely. Definitely. They build on each other. So if you haven't uh, heard every single other episode, please go back and listen to Start every single... episode one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, so I think... You would be the stand-in for the resident expert of this topic this week. That's frightening. Yeah. Expert TM. Uh, So we're going to be talking a little bit about the philosophy of egoism. Is that fair to call it that? Is it the only philosophy of egoism? Egoism is... Well, we'll we'll get into that. This is a particular flavor of egoism. One of the the oldest ones. Okay. Um, At least to, to come about formally. All right, well, I'll let you explain and give it a little introduction. Sure. So uh, we'll talk about egoism broadly first. So I have the Wikipedia article pulled up um, that egoism is the philosophy concerned with the role of the self or ego as the motivation and goal of one's own action, um, as opposed to acting for, say, others or some other interest that you might have. Um, An important thing, and this is where it gets into different types of egoism, is that uh, egoists need not necessarily be concerned with their own self-interest, but, and I I think this has a lot to do with the way that uh, the philosopher we're going to talk about, Max Stirner, uh, sees it, is it has to do with uh, prioritizing action according to one's will. Um, So you're not necessarily selfish, per se, but you're not concerned with what anyone else tells you that you should do right okay so uh just to give a little bit more background um so i am pretty agnostic to this topic as of now uh i didn't do any research leading up to this point as on purpose uh definitely on purpose definitely on purpose um (laughs) i avoided the topic entirely on purpose um so i could be the resident uh ignoramus if you will uh so that uh hopefully my questions will be emblematic of those that you might have and if not you know you're more than welcome to interact with us to try to pose those questions um Mm -hmm. or seek them out for yourself so um if i were to explore the topic and i'm just going to give this brief thing uh i'll start where i always start and according to the oxford dictionaries that egoism or another term for egotism which is kind of funny to me for horrible reasons uh, is an ethical theory that treats self-interest as the foundation of morality. Um, how would you s- characterize that? Like, if if I were to just I look don't, at that okay, and go, the, okay. um, the the definition might be fine. I disagree with the conflation with egotism. Um, is the e- egotism is is a little bit different. That's more like uh, that's almost like narcissism. Yeah, according, again, to the uh, Oxford Dictionary's egotism is the practice of talking and thinking about oneself excessively because of an undue sense of self-importance. Right, that's a very different thing. Yeah, and I think it also kind of colors the term egoism badly. 
because egotism most people would look at that and go ugh, I, and they immediately would like think of a person like, and even looking at cinema who's an egotist yeah like an egomaniac or uh, who's someone who's self-absorbed or self-obsessed or narcissistic yeah. whereas and that's a noun whereas we're referring to a philosophy which has got a lot more nuance to it um yeah. and uh so yeah so that's um so that's egoism broadly. broadly um and and yeah so as i said there there's conflicts within egoism about whether this has to do with self-interest or just one's own will um but we'll get into specifically uh max turner so oh, well, go ahead. i was also going to say uh, and in true philosopher's faction uh, being the pragmatists that we are um i would also like to take a moment to talk a little bit about why philosophies matter to an everyday person which i realize could easily be stretched into its own episode but we'll give an abridged version for now so what and maybe we could tie it directly to this philosophy at some point later in the episode. But why why does philosophy matter to the everyday person? Because I would imagine the everyday person probably doesn't care all that much about philosophy in discussion. They may not like to armchair it as much as we do from our chairs with arms. <laughs> um, but why does it matter? Or at least to you. It matters for... Purposes of informing my everyday decisions. Right. And I would tend to agree. And we had kind of talked about that, I think, also at some point, now that you've said that. Um, the study of philosophy, I would say, and this is coming totally you know, off the top of my head. I'm sure there are more refined and elegant ways to say it. But what we're really talking about are reasons behind our behavior and then mm -hmm. guide our behavior why do we make the decisions we make and not only that but how should we make decisions um i think at least in the pragmatic sense that's what philosophy is good for is it's, it's a way to construct a framework to help you out in situations where you have not been before and you need to make a decision about what you're going to do um you know, I, I would say, traditionally speaking, if you're in a situation that you've been in before, you you have a bias or you have experience to make that decision. Um, but it but in an area in which you don't, it, it can help uh, to help guide your decisions. And I mean this very nichely in the everyday practice of philosophy. Um, so if you are an egoist, if you're a person who follows the I wouldn't necessarily maybe say prescriptions, but if you tend to hear about the philosophy of egoism and that sounds like it's correct to you, it might change the way you make your decisions in your daily life. Right. And I think what's important is in studying this is that we can construct these systems to help us make these decisions and guide our decision making in a way that is beneficial uh, to the things that we find important. So I, that to me is what stands out and why we're bothering to discuss this. And the next time maybe someone you know and this kind of goes deeper as well like uh most religions kind of come bundled with a form of philosophy as well and prescriptions more directly mm -hmm. uh that kind of do the same whereas philosophy can do that somewhat agnostically like you know just for built entirely on reasons uh or whatever the philosophy claims to be built on uh you can at least construct a logical chain of thought as to why you make the decisions that you make uh, so Without further ado of beating that dead horse, we can jump now into specifically this philosophy, starting out with what egoism even is. So take it away, David. Sure. So 
all the things that I'm going to be saying about Sterner's egoism comes from his book that he wrote in 1844 titled The Ego and Its Own. It has a German title that I'm not going to try to pronounce. He's a German philosopher. Um, anyway, I won't focus too much on the title. There's some other things with that. But um, the the structure of this book first talks about the his his idea of different uh stages uh in a person's life uh the um that when when a person is born or, or when when someone is young they are their their primary concern is their the external restrictions in their life um they they are exploring figuring out what can and cannot be done physically first and foremost um and these these external forces may literally be physics but also you know uh figures in their lives that that control what they're able to do um he calls this the realistic stage um because that's all that a child has to work with really their their mind is not developed enough to hold any sort of philosophy um you know they might be able to repeat certain things that their parents teach them um, but they don't really have a philosophical understanding of those things usually if like if they, if say they're being taught a religion or something um so they're they're concerned with that they they live in the moment and and focus on their uh their immediate restrictions when uh let's see he um and also he this stage is also characterized by learning how to overcome those restrictions with something he calls the self-discovery of mind. Um, that's sort of a different thing that he has. He, he, he does sort of like to, he sort of plays psychologist in this book, um, which is something that people may take issue with. And I sort of take issue with, but I won't uh, dwell on that at the moment too much but anyway the idea is understanding the restrictions and attempting to overcome them but the the issue that he takes with society is it has to do with the second stage that he characterizes which is called the idealistic stage um in which people be uh even though they they started out trying to overcome restrictions they become enslaved by uh, not external forces, but internal forces, which he calls spooks. Um, and he, he uses this term to, I think that, I think that is a very apt term for the thing that he's trying to describe with things, things that, um, like concoctions of the mind that, uh, that make people pause about their actions. Um, and so these, these things include, um, very, uh, broad things like, uh, conscience and reason down to narrower things like religion and nationalism uh, where now now you begin to hold certain things sacred and uh, and you instead of being restricted by the world you restrict yourself based on your ideals um, so that is the primary issue that Sterner argues against in this book and that and he and he then he then goes on to say that um, what should be the final stage is getting past that to the third stage of egoism, where you 
essentially transcend such spooks and live for yourself again. Okay. So just to kind of wrap that back. So we, we start out under, like you said, in the realistic stage where we're primarily concerned with, you know, what, what I can and cannot do and what I'm bound by, um, be it, you know, parents or physics, you know, uh, and then we move from there to being idealistic and we use that self-discovery of the mind to, I guess, compensate or is it, is the self-discovery of the mind constructed around those constraints or in lieu of them? You know, I guess would be my thought. And, um, but anyway, but inevitably we do start to build up similar restrictions, but only in our minds. Right. And, and, and you listed off things like religion and nationalism where, you know, on one side of things, you can hold things as ideal and you can hold other things as taboo. For example, like we've done a whole series on taboos and how, you know, these are purely socially enforced, right? And uh, right. But the only effect that any type of social enforcement has on a person has to do with how susceptible they are to other things like shame um, and stuff like that, which is an internalization of, you know, what other people are doing. Uh, and I would say even more so, like, in the general sense, you know, things like anxiety. People who obsess about, like, you see this a lot in people who suffer from, like, forms of social anxiety where they're, they're it's not that they're afraid of other people um but it's that in some cases they obsess about what the other person might think or feel about them but because they can never know they substitute it with what they're essentially imprinting on that person you know like right and they they dream up the worst case scenarios of what could possibly happen right or and sometimes something does happen and then after the fact, they begin to try to figure out, which they can't, but their mind attempts to implant, you know, theoretically in the other person's head how they perceived it, right? They're trying to perceive something that's really imperceivable, uh, totally. Like, you can get a basic sense from someone, like, from facial expressions, like, oh, they did not like that, or they did like that. But then there's also compounding factors like, but how good am I at reading other people? How good is that person at deceiving other people about what they're actually thinking? And because your mind has no limits to what it can dwell on, mm -hmm. you can get stuck in this loop where you go back and forth between the two and your mind has a great way of concocting the worst possible scenario to you. And all of this are things that are just in your head. Um, and I would say that you know, just looking at this, egoism is, if you were to transcend that via egoism, you wouldn't feel that way. To, just to give a practical example. Uh, I'm not saying that this is practically applicable for someone who, say, does suffer from things like social anxiety. But Yeah, I would not tell a person who is afflicted with social anxiety to adopt uh, egoism as a solution to their problems. And I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know if that necessarily applies because, like, that that's actually a, like, a mental disorder um, sure um but it's, it's not like ideologically driven fair enough right um fair enough uh okay they're just worried they're just worried yeah um now granted spooks are also things that people worry about um but it's these are mm, maybe with the exception of conscience learned behaviors even with conscience that can be a learned behavior too you can you can pick up from others what they think are bad and then you will internalize that into your conscience right they're more like uh 
it, I guess in philosophical terms, symbols, right? Like things that humans made to kind of help the memes, symbols, things like that. Like right. Like let, let's take an example of something that people people might say. Like okay, we live in a society. In a society. We live in a society <laughs> um, in which people are able to vote for representatives and such. Some people call this a civic duty. That the the notion of a civic duty like that is something that Sterner would have called a spook. Mm-hmm. Um, that like why, if if I'm not bothered by the status quo, why why should I change my behavior and go vote just because it is my duty? Right. But people people become convinced that these are just things that you need to do because reasons. Okay, that's the kind of thing that he's talking about. Okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay, um, let's see. Okay, so another thing that he takes issue with is the the notion that modern individuals are progressively more free than their predecessors. Hmm. Um, so we have this idea as we as we study history of you know you start um, you know roughly with either you know warlords or or just a. Uh, uh, wealthy individuals controlling others around them and then throughout society we've we've, power has gone more and more into the control of people spread out rather than uh rulers generally um he takes issue with this idea um that although although there may be fewer external barriers he he says he he sees people instead uh possessed by these spooks um and and the the particular ones that he takes issue with are christianity and the ideologies of the modern nation state um so so religion and nationalism are the things that he takes the the most issue with um that these these are holding people back from actually owning themselves Right, and and I was looking up this other philosopher because I couldn't remember his name. Uh, that does kind of sound like uh, I'm gonna make double sure the concept of like the noble savage, for example. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of that example in philosophy. I have definitely heard that term before. Um, and I want to say this is attributable to uh, Rousseau, but maybe he's just the one who pushed it uh, on. Yeah in Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, where he talked about how, uh, and this was kind of in his response to Thomas Hobbes and they're discussing the state of nature, right? Where, yeah, where, yeah. Like we, we were just as, you know, we were much better off back then because we weren't burdened by the same, uh, concerns of the modern day, which I think you can even see there's a meme of that that exists in the modern realm right yes uh people will take the uh <laughs> people like for example why why would you ever want to go camping you know i don't understand people's fascination with wanting to essentially live in squalor for mm-hmm. fun um but <laughs> um <laughs> but even more so now people talk about taking like technology breaks right where they'll intentionally give themselves a vacation from the internet or their phone yes uh one one that i saw on on uh one of my favorite subreddits uh r slash i'm 14 and this is deep mm. uh was uh we used to get on the 
uh, get on the internet to escape from reality, and now we go to reality to escape from the internet. Woof. <laughs> I can just imagine lying down in the rain and thinking that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, but but there's something about that, you know, and there's also whenever someone, like I think you see it as well. We live in a fairly rural area, so we don't see it as much. But when someone moves here from an urban area mm. and they they're excited to live rurally because it's slower here mm-hmm. like that that there's that connotation that yeah. life is simple here you know and, and you even hear that in advertisements you know yeah um back when times were simpler you know and stuff <laughs> like that um and, and i also think it's kind of wrapped up even in the fetishization of like being a farmer mm-hmm. you know it's a simple life it's not, but people believe that it's like, yeah, you just go out and you do hard manual labor for 14 hours a day and your life is simple and it's great because you don't have, you're not burdened with all the pressures of modern society and wearing yeah, a suit totally to work. not true. Exactly. You don't have to wear a suit to work, but no, but instead <laughs> that's not the only pressure that exists. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, now obviously I think his is a little bit more, uh, social, would you say like, or maybe that's not the right word for it, but it's, Things are different now because of how interconnected it, we are, or is it? Well, at the time he was writing, eighteen hundreds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I, I don't know. Maybe they people in the nineteenth century or the eighteen hundreds would have said the world is much more connected than it was a hundred years ago, which is true. I don't know how much more so that would be the case. I don't know how cognizant most people would be aware of that. Um, but yeah, I don't know that there would have been that meaningful of a difference. Right. Uh, I, I, I don't know necessarily that I would agree. Uh, well, wait a minute. He, he pushed back against that thought, right? The, the idea of times being simpler, that kind of thing. Is that, is that what you said? This he well, I I don't know that he ever talked about times being simpler. I'm I'm using that to summarize like spooks like spooks were less common back then in his terms well yes that would be that would be true okay so i'll I'll let you continue sorry um anyway i won't get too much into his uh critique of the protestant reformation but that was another thing that he uh he took issue with of the um like religion becoming personal Mm. um he didn't like that uh because because then it's not an institution telling you what to do. It's you telling you what to do. Mm. Um, or he was Catholic. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a good question. Let me look at something real quick. Because I, I think I might get what he's saying. And, and, and this would take... And this would depend also a lot on what he meant, right? Because I, I do understand what he means when he says religion is less personal. Um, having grown up in a Protestant church... Uh, there was that saying that, well, you hear it now. When people talk about the phrase in Christian religious communities of getting saved, they, there's often this component of accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior, right? Like there's a mm-hmm. strong emphasis on being a Christian, at least in the modern Protestant church, is it's about having a relationship between you and God, which if you believe in God, you believe as a separate entity, but if you don't and you believe that it's a figment of your imagination, then that's almost by definition adopting and embracing a spook in his in his terms, you know. 
So yeah, I, I could see where he, that argument would come from for sure. Um, and and now that it's on us necessarily to malign his motivations, but taking his work at face value, I do understand what he means. I don't know that I would agree that that's worse than how religion was previously, because a lot of the things that, uh, at least in Christianity since its inception, uh, a lot of them already deal with internalizing, and I think this is maybe just a component of religion itself, is internalizing a doctrine to impose on yourself maybe making the emphasis making that a stronger emphasis during protestantism is true um but i would feel like that's just a i don't know that it's any more concerning than religion in general mm -hmm. necessarily but that's my modern critique i have no clue what it would be like then sure um okay so In the second part of his book, he he expounds upon ways he thinks that people can uh, escape from their ideologies. He does this using a concept called ownness, um, and this this term it's as vague as it sounds. Um, Great. Yeah. <laughs> It's philosophy, though, so it's, we're right on. Um, I, I'll, I'll read his description quoted from the book. Okay. Uh, ownness includes in itself everything own and brings to honor again what Christian language dishonored. But ownness has not any alien standard either, as it is not in any sense an idea like freedom, morality, humanity, etc. It is only a description of the owner. Don't you love it when people use the word they're defining in the <laughs> definition? It's great. But I think I get what he's trying to, to get at. I don't know that I would agree necessarily with the term. I feel like it might be inherently fallacious. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think I understand what he's trying to achieve, you know. Um, I'll save my continued comment until later, uh, but I'll, I'll jot it down for now um, and allow you to move on. Okay. Anyway, it essentially self ownership, but kind of, sort of, mostly. Um, <laughs> uh, so, one interesting thing that people get a little hung up on with Sterner's egoism is his views about the state. Um, he. He declares himself to be an enemy of the state, but the reason that he's opposed to the state is not because he is opposed to the idea of people, like, he's not opposed to the idea of a society of people operating together in unity. He He's opposed to the current implementation of the state that has it has become a spook that people like ally themselves to the nation as if that is a thing that can be allied to um and so but the the um the uh, the hmm, what's a fancy fancy word anyway his his like the personification of the state almost 
or it's given yeah. attributes and characteristics like a person would right be. and it behaves as its own entity okay um and is and is imposed on others within its territory um so the idea that he comes up with as his ideal state so to speak is called the union of egoists so this idea is is interesting and somewhat difficult to uh, to understand at at, uh, at first glance. Um, and I don't claim to have a complete understanding of it either. But basically, it's it's sort of a voluntary society. So, so it, it operates like a state. But instead, like, people are not forced to participate. Um, he... He proposes the idea that that this uh, this union should be periodically renewed by all members. Like he, so he's not he's not opposed to like the the things that a state does, but only the philosophical foundation of it. Hmm. He has a problem with the, that that the state declares itself an entity and declares that it has authority somehow. Um, he and so he questions where does this authority come from? So, never mind that. We can still have this so long as we all keep renewing the agreement. Okay, so let's let's think about this practically. So one of the characteristics we often associate with modern states uh, and states, as I guess he would argue against, are things like geographical boundaries, right? One of the things that almost all states have are geographical boundaries. And it, it's marks on a map that says everywhere in this area i impose i am the full stop you know end of the line Mm -hmm. so under this kind of an example the state would not necessarily operate geographically based i don't know that it could say for an example that everyone in a town of 100 people that are fairly evenly dispersed because you know in philosophy and in you know even things like physics for example cows or spheres uh you know, we're going to create a totally not realistic, but mm-hmm. hypothetical. There's an evenly spaced hexa, you know, hexagon where, where there's a hundred people in it, which I don't know if you can evenly disperse hundred people in a hexagon. Don't at me. Uh, it's not the point. Um, so everyone decides first round, we're all going to join the union of egoists and boom. Now we have our thing, our state that fulfills all the things that we want a state for. Mm-hmm. Right. So we go through a generation, uh, and now we reach into the set period, and we need to reaffirm. So now, all but one of the members who happens to be located in the center of the group decides to re Would the, and I don't know what Max Stirner's philosophy on ownership was, but assuming property ownership is a thing, because, you know, I'd like to imagine a life where I could own things. Um, would that person now be out of the state and not be subject to it, right? If they did not consent... I think his idea then would be you're just treated like a foreigner. Right. But like if I own property, do, do does my property leave with me, including my land? I I think so. Okay. So now you have a donut-shaped country, yes. roughly speaking, a hexagonal donut <laughs> uh, where – but this also opens up other things like I guess diasporatic nations. Mm-hmm. Um good example being like um 
ethnic Jews being spread across Europe because they never like they, they occupied a physical state at one point uh, in Israel. But then once they were diet, like if they were to want to align themselves that way, you could essentially say that, well, everywhere we are is where is our state. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and even if I'm the only one in my country, now this little speck of land is now also under the authority because I voluntarily gave it of a, another entity, which I don't want to get into how that would work with states that don't agree yet. Uh, but you could say there were several nations of agorists or unions of agorists or not agorists, uh, egoists. Sorry, egoists sorry. We'll talk about agorism later, later. Yeah. Not, not in this episode. So say there's a three unions of agor- uh, egoists. Dang it. I don't, you, you said it. Now I'm going to keep saying it. I uh, actually, you said it first, but anyway, go on. <laughs> um, which I don't know that necessarily that would ever occur. Did, did he ever talk about, would there ever only be one union of egoists or is it possible that different flavors no. could arise? Okay. Yeah, there can be, because it's all voluntary. So people can do their own union if they want. Okay. So uh, you could, the worst case scenario you could imagine, at least from a map maker's perspective would be, um, or a cartographer's perspective is a bunch of dots colored in like a polka dot pattern where it's like every one of these dots that's the same color is of the same union, whereas the others aren't. Mm-hmm. Um and there's also the question of would people who are members of a union be able to voluntarily withdraw at any time or do they have to wait for the period? And that might just be a nuance that I'm sure relevant. different unions could agree on different terms right. of renewal. Um, but yeah, so I think practically speaking, this this causes some issues. Um, whilst I agree I with that being a decent idea, uh, I think it also happens to depend on what you think the state is for. Yeah. Uh, and does he go into that at all? Like what he, the role of the state should be? Uh, not in this book. He has other books that I have not looked at, really. So you're telling me you didn't do enough research for this? Set? No, I'm just playing around. I'm not being paid enough to do that. That's um, fair. <laughs> not being paid at all. Uh, uh, but that's fair. Um, but I think just on its surface is an interesting concept, right? Um, we could we could take for an example. I mean, you could also maybe argue that it's whatever the people who are in the union think it should do. Right. Right. So. Yes. So he, he characterizes like the ideal state is is not like an entity. It, it's not an institution. It's an instrument. Um, it's. It's people voluntarily. Combining their efforts to do something. Right. It almost to me it's almost reminiscent of I don't know what this is called in the state but when a state wants to or a group of people wants to like say we're in a community right mm-hmm. like uh, but we are you know our community decides that we want to build a bridge mm-hmm. well typically speaking we can crowdfund the money to back it but at the end of the day it's often best when one person is given the task and entrusted with the funds and they are given the task the funds and they go do the thing Mm -hmm. um now the state automates this process in a way where it sets up institutions which are designed to take in people and resources and output you know uh officers of the state and hopefully if they're doing their job achieving the goal we would like Mm -hmm. but they're done on like continual basis 
uh, I guess a good comparison would be the difference between forming a posse and having a police force. A standing police force, yeah. Right. Uh, and I think practically speaking, you know, or a militia versus a military. An army, yeah. yeah an army, yeah. Um, I think uh, I would, you would, I think, and this might just be because of my education that was funded by and held up by a state, that an army is much better than a militia because an army, a standing army, can be trained and even in peacetime to be prepared and ready to go to war because of this dedicated purpose at any given time. That right. being said, I live in a nation where a militia was able to ensure its existence. You know, but yes, our nation was founded by various militias. Right, but you know, I'm sure there were factors that made that easier than otherwise. And there was kind of sort of an army too, kinda. True, kinda. Um, I would think that I I wish that we could just designate a sandbox to try this out because I would be curious to see how effective it was. Mm-hmm. Um, like what what would the efficacy be of having a essentially treating the state like a tool anything that the state would generate would be just a sub tool to hopefully mm-hmm. pr- fulfill its whole list of purposes because mm-hmm. um, that makes i think the most sense to me you wouldn't necessarily want to say okay well the state's job is say you believe that it's the state's job to provide health care well you wouldn't say okay it's the state's job to provide health care so we're going to uh, randomly elect or we're going the state is now going to we're, we're going to appoint people like where people are going to volunteer or like whatever to now go do this mm-hmm. but you you would hope that the those most qualified would be the ones that would go do that yeah uh, like if this if hey jim bob you're the surgeon general now <laughs> yes so get out there and make us healthier and if you don't do it well enough then well the next time we re-up we're not going to pick you which <laughs> i'm fine with that in concept where it's like all right so we all put money in we are all going to figure out this is almost like an organized form of what already would occur in a free market i think mm-hmm. where if you really are the person who's best for the job you would naturally rise to the top if people were to select you. And I don't know if I think that having a state is necessary, but I do think this would come in interesting in something like the philosophy or the philosophical idea of the state having the monopoly on force. Does he talk about that at all? Because that's one of the things that people kind of reserve for the state. I don't think he really talks about that in this book. And, and that's fine if he doesn't, but it does. it is, I think, worth thinking about that. And to be fair, fair i would suppose that each union of egoists could decide whether the state should have the monopoly on force or not but typically speaking that's kind of one of those things that is reserved for states i think okay so maybe this is a time to talk about this i meant to talk about this earlier sure um so one of one of the defining things with cerner's egoism is that it was written as a response to the notion of natural rights with which he disagrees. Okay. Um, and I'm kind of on board with that because I also think that natural rights are kind of just hand-waving um, because where are my rights in nature? Fair. I've never seen them. Um, so I think, I think that I, I don't know that he would have a comment about, you know, who has the monopoly on force because now you're talking about rights. Hmm. Who has the right to employ force? That doesn't matter. What matters is who can employ force. Okay. Hmm. Well, and, you know, under that framework, the union of egoists kind of makes sense because if 
you would think that if the need to employ force was a thing, that would be a role of the state. Right. There is a foreign threat. Invaders are on their way. Yeah. Um, you know, so we will raise an army or whatever, or become an army. Sure. Or whatever. Right. Well, and, d- and domestically speaking, if we all get together and decide that one person is causing too much trouble, we will become the police force in that case. Right. Um, I, I think, you know, taking it back to just abstraction, I do really like the idea of forming not institutions, but forming compacts for purposes mm-hmm. and a purpose. And, and this is and dissolving as soon as that purpose is achieved. Yeah. I was going to say the, the, it's not explicitly stated, but it's assumed that the, the purpose should fulfill its goal. And then the moment it does is no longer necessary. Dissolve it. Mm-hmm. Um, or if it's not doing a good job of fulfilling its goal, then it should be replaced. I do agree with that concept. Like, I know that I've had a peculiar fascination with posses. I bring them up a lot more lately than I've ever had before. <laughs> but I really kind of like the concept uh, of not not so much a posse, but like a tool being created for and the intended purpose. Mm-hmm. Not having a an institution whose job is to solve all the problems, and then it gets to decide how it does that. Um, I think that's too broad. Mm-hmm. So interesting so that's uh his view on states so we got a few more things we got to get through uh yeah so you have some practical examples influences so on and so forth um i think we sort of talked about okay i don't know that we talked specifically about practical examples but like ways that we might see an egoist society looking which we just discussed with the the union of egoists so i don't know if i have a whole lot to go into there that's fine. Um, influences I find interesting. So I looked. I looked at some of the um, the notable influences that this book had, and one very interesting one that jumped out at me was Karl Marx. Hmm. Um, so Karl Marx read this book, and uh, you might be surprised at his reaction. He praised the book initially, at least, um, and and characterized Stirner as noble, um, and that his conception of egoism can serve as a point of departure for communism. Hmm. I was going to say, I, I can already hear some people demanding a source for that. <laughs> like just, uh, it is cited on the Wikipedia article. Okay, cool. Um, reference number seven at the time that I'm reading it from a book called Max Stirner's dialectical egoism, a new interpretation published in 2010. Interesting. Anyway, um, so a uh, I believe this is a direct quote from from Marx. It is certainly true that we must first make a cause our own egoistic cause before we can do anything to further it. Hmm. Okay. So that's neat. That's that is neat. <laughs> um he has some some more to say after that but that's not really important. Um then of course he uh he later went on to uh he, he collaborated with uh, Friedrich Engels. Uh, anyway, so he and Marx uh, collaborated on a uh, a criticism of uh, the ego and its own, um, and this was apparently filled with ad hominem attacks and insults against Stirner personally. So interesting, interesting how that took a turn. Um, <laughs> let's see. 
okay so yeah so uh benjamin tucker was the other uh uh influence uh, interesting influence that i saw so he was the editor of the journal uh liberty i think this was in the 50s something like that what century uh 20th century 1950s yes oh actually i'm wrong it's late 19th century i was saying because if it was an influence yeah oh wait so max sterner these are people that max sterner influenced influenced gotcha i was thinking because marks i can understand they both existed around the same time Mm -hmm. but i was like if this is how (laughs) uh yeah i had it backwards sorry right okay so liberty was published uh 1881 to 1908 um anyway so uh benjamin tucker was uh was also talking about uh the the rejection of the concept of of natural rights and this led to a, a huge uh schism in let's see why is this capitalized that's interesting and then in this article it's not capitalized that's fun uh american individualist anarchism um say that three times fast <laughs> i can probably do that but i won't um anyway I'm, and there's a whole bunch of list of names here for people who are on the side of egoism versus natural rights. Um, but that's an interesting bit of, uh, of history of, of anarchism in the, in the United States. Um, anyway. So the next, is that all we have for influences? Yes. Okay. I want to make sure for I just mm-hmm. steamrolled on by, cause I do that sometimes. Um, so lastly, we have some implications and I guess some closing comments. Uh, before we get into, because you've kind of been discussing implications, right, mm-hmm. uh, all throughout. I want to take it back to the philosophy, and I told you I was going to bring this up at the end, and I'm going to. Um, the concept of ownness, right? Yes. I'm bringing it back to that. Hmm. So you you said it's similar to the concept of self-ownership. Similar. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of a stickler for how philosophies interact with reality even though philosophers love to talk about reality i think one philosophy on reality kind of stands out amongst the rest and that's the scientific philosophy Mm -hmm. which is a way by which we can objectively demarcate reality yes uh which i tend to uphold um because it's great um objective reality is the best reality objectively um so one of the, the things that i'm gonna take issue with then is he i'm gonna start with spooks in general okay while i do like the way he uses that word and i like his definition for it regardless of its modern definition um i don't know that we are anything else but at, at our core and i'll get on mm, with it. okay so we have had a few examples of human beings raised outside of human contact uh they are not common and we cannot study this naturally because that's very uh, unethical ethics yeah <laughs> um but we have witnessed examples of other human beings who have almost no like preconceived notions because they from the time they were very, very young, existed in the wild. They're yep. feral humans. Feral humans, yep. Um, and feral humans do not seem to have any, you would think, would have no spooks. 
right? However, they do. Uh, they do have preconceived notions, and they do have ideas. Um, granted, not the ones that I would think Max Sterner would talk about. Um, they're more informed from experience. Well, surely they're not going to be sophisticated ones, yeah. No. Um, but I would think that I, I kind of fall more on the nurture side of where our, I guess, what humans would describe as our higher functionings and, like, I guess your mind as opposed to just your brain. Uh, which, again, show me in the brain where the mind is. You know, how white. Um, but a lot of what and who we are and our personalities are just this conglomeration of what we observe and what we mimic. Like, mimicry is such a crucial part of human beings developing a personality, as we would say. You know, and I'm no, I'm not going to sit here and try to necessarily be an armchair psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I would be curious to see how his his definition and his concept of ownness, which is like the cornerstone of his philosophy, really. How does that fit with our modern understanding of human psychology? Um, is it even possible to rid yourself of spooks and transcend to ownness, you know, to be an ownness and to be an egoist? Or can you just believe that you have? And is that good enough, right? Um, and could you even invite your, cause you reach this like interesting thing. Like I want to go, I'm going to go here. Yeah. So say that I wanted to become an egoist, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to ascend to egoism. Well, there's a really easy way your brain can do that. And that is to believe that it's an egoist. Yes. Um, and, but not only that, but you develop spooks about whether or not you're actually an egoist. Yes. Uh, there's a fun paradoxical effect where, yeah. You can you can so hate spooks that you you concoct your own spooks about avoiding them, right? Um, and so that's I think the biggest issue I took in everything that I've learned so far today. It's uh, like how uh, kids in high school rebel against the system together. Exactly. Um, <laughs> well, and, because they're different, but we're different together. So right. Well, and and you see this even you know. Uh, I've been watching a lot of what Michael Malice has been doing lately. And a lot of the work he's been trying to do is unite the different fractured groups of anarchists together. Be you an anarcho-communist, an anarcho-capitalist, anarcho-individualist. I'm not going to pull the Wikipedia and read the... To name all 200 different types of anarchism that are documented on Wikipedia and then the other ones that aren't. Exactly. <laughs> um, I haven't actually looked at the number. Don't... Yeah, don't at me there. <laughs> um, but it's funny because we do seem to need to come together in order to make effective change in some way, shape, or form. And the best way to do that is to group up, as we would. Mm -hmm. But we have this nasty habit of any time a group of us get together, as I don't want to misattribute, but I do believe maybe it's Aristotle who put this out, politics in his, and this is in his discussion on politics, is that anytime two humans get in the same room together, politics happens because we can't help it. Uh, that's our way of organizing ourselves. Um, and we inevitably create institutions. Like, I think you could even look at the most underdeveloped tribes of human beings and politics exists there. Uh, we, we create institutions there. Um, it's, 
I don't want to say it's just a part of us. Like, it's just inevitable necessarily because the whole goal of progress is to find new ways of doing things and discover new things. But something that's so integral to our way of existing, like just being a self, uh, which is just a concept we came up with to help better describe things, and it doesn't actually affect the reality. And that's another thing I think that we have to be careful with when we think about stuff like this is that just because you come up with a term to describe it doesn't instantly force it into reality. And I and, and that's something I run into a lot, quick sidebar, when I do discuss philosophy with people is they'll, they'll uphold a term like ownness. Or, you know, when I discuss things with people like objectivists, they almost hold objectivism in the most unobjective way possible, mm-hmm. right? Uh as a as a spook you know just in, in to use the common term we've been using so far all this episode uh that doesn't make it real you know um what's real i guess is what i would want to get back to is is this feasible and and not only that but does his philosophy fall apart if this isn't real or can it be salvaged on something else you know um and i I would tend to believe as a gut feeling, having given it very little thought, just intuitively would say that I do not think it is possible to ascend to his definition of egoism. I do not think it's possible. It's an unachievable goal for human beings as we exist physically and objectively is not possible. And pragmatically speaking, it means that we should take lessons from this but not pursue it as an option which is fine i think that's what's happened right um just because an idea is impossible does not mean it there's not something you can learn from it um but i would say that when it comes to this philosophy you know if you if you dear listener are an egoist and you strongly disagree with me i would love to know why um because i do like this idea i i like a lot of the ideas that he espouses Especially since he seems to be approaching the concept of things like the state from somewhat more of a pragmatic view of things. I think he acknowledges that we will always need tools to achieve uh, an accomplished task or to solve problems. And I like his way of viewing the state as just a tool to to implement in that way. You know, um, but I I would like to see us I, I would like to see a way we could bring that about you know, philosophically, that's congruent and not paradoxical. Mm -hmm. But I think that's my biggest bone to pick right now. And unfortunately, it seems that it's, it's a, it's a pretty big bone that I'm picking, at least for, for this philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Why do you think people always conflate this with egotism is that worth even thinking about like is is there anything in this philosophy that might lead someone towards egotism or is there is there some correlations there that maybe give it merit or do you think it's just the words sound similar so uh, i think i think some of it might have to do with the um the the rejection of the concept of natural rights um can can lead one to connect it to egotism where it's like okay well, I don't acknowledge that you have any rights and I'm going to do what I want. Mm. That kind of a thing. Um, Fair. Fr- from uh, a particular egoist that I have talked to, he would say, well, I do think that, but also I don't want to hurt you and do things that you would think would violate your rights. 
Yeah, so like practically speaking, I don't think you have rights. But also practically speaking, I don't. Right, but you're sort of dancing on the razor's edge right. of, but if you're in my way, I don't have a philosophical problem with getting rid of you. Right, like, and let's take it back because we, we, we did say we were going to bring this back into practical, mm-hmm. uh, the pragmatic. So I think that is one of the pragmatic issues is that let's go back to our nine our 100 person evenly distributed hexagonal state because yeah. you know hexagons being bestagons and all uh, yes. the one person odd manning out and saying well i don't i ain't gonna you know i'm mm-hmm. gonna step out now ideally everyone else is fine with that and then they go about making a state but then guy in the middle decides that you know what i would really suit me <laughs> to extend my property into someone else's and they don't have any rightful claim to it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like, and I would think that maybe this runs up against, you know, my example from earlier, I asserted property rights. Well, that's, that's kind of a natural right, you know, property rights and all it's derived from, it, you don't have rights. to, you don't have to think of rights as you don't have to use natural rights necessarily to get there, but mm, sure. But sure. But some people might say it is, you know, and that's the other problem is, where do you reach consensus, I guess. But regardless. Well, yeah, like the the idea that, yeah, I don't know that there would necessarily be consensus. Yeah, because if he says, well, I'm going to, quote unquote, annex this adjacent area to what I called my property before. Um, but that happens to be what someone in the larger group calls their property. Well, now we have a conflict. Right. How do we resolve the conflict? I'm not part of the society. I'm not part of the union. So I'm not in the contract of how we resolve this this conflict. Right. So, you know, we can either come up with a new agreement on the spot, but most likely it's not going to be resolved peacefully. No. And it's going to be everyone in the union saying, okay, but yeah, you can't do that or we're going to beat you up. Right. And you can still end up with essentially a lot of the same problems I already have with like democracy where we can do that. We can all, uh, well, all being 51% of us can say, you know. Yeah, but we're going to beat you up if you don't do it this way. Right. Yeah. Um. Now, the last thing I'll say about natural rights, because we are coming up on time, and that's a, this is going to maybe be a jumping off point at some point to mm-hmm. a different discussion, but I could already, I can hear maybe claims being made that egoism is a might-makes-right style of philosophy where because of the yes. natural rights thing. Um, and we've talked a little bit about that, but looking at things pragmatically hot take i guess of the day would be that it kind of be like that though you know um right at the end of the day it the only thing that really matters in the real world is power yeah who can yeah and then more appropriately who does right um and if you don't have power then you can scream about your rights all day but nothing's going to happen right and i think one of the things this philosophy does well depending on, I guess, you know, your perspective, is that it doesn't ignore the fact that that's real. Mm-hmm. It it accounts for that, or it tries to, which I appreciate, that it, it acknowledges that we do need a way for people to essentially collectivize their power in order to preserve themselves, which has been a way that we've done things essentially forever. Um, most social creatures do this, Um this happens just to be a way in which you can at least voluntarily opt out and disassociate yourself. But I mean, at the end of the day, you know, 
if you're not, I think this ends up with, like, you know, I don't know if it terminates into a single union or if it, which I think maybe was maybe what Marx was thinking was that, you know, long term, I'm putting thoughts in his head right mm-hmm. now. So do not take this as an accurate interpretation of what he actually would have said, because I have no clue. But um, one of the ideas behind communism is that communism would work best if everyone was a communist, right? Right. And which most philosophies would also kind of say that, even if people don't like it. Like even libertarians would say that libertarianism works best when everyone upholds libertarian values, mm-hmm. right? Um, but with communism, you, you would end up with this place where you know, you, you could start out with a fractured group of unions of egoists, but the union that does the best will attract the most, theoretically. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, you'll have one that is powerful enough to consume the others, mm-hmm. either by force or which in, in a might-makes-right world, it would, right? It, if it was so incentivized. Mm-hmm. Um and especially in the worst case scenario where that union needs external resources to continue to thrive in a failing, you know, system, it absolutely would attempt to grow, to consume more resources and attempt to uphold itself, right? So I, I don't know. I it it's tough, you know, and and, and maybe, you know, I'm I'm all down for tabling the might makes right argument and revisiting it at a different time because that's a whole other thing. Um, if you are curious to know what we've already said about it, I think we discussed that in authority versus power, which was an earlier episode Yeah, uh, where we go into that. Um, but yeah, so I, I've learned a lot about it, but coming into this mostly agnostic, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to think about, uh, and I definitely don't think it's worth just entirely writing off. Um, but I also would say that I don't know that I would want to adopt this philosophy and let it guide all my decisions. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting, and, and I'm glad we decided to discuss it because I, I think last week we were talking about when we, were, when we ended up deciding on doing this topic. Uh, I can't remember if this came on the heels of something else, but uh, it was a discussion around. Well, if, I want to do this thing. People think that I shouldn't, but but I really want to, and I can. You know, I, I feel like that kind of came off the heels of maybe that discussion. That was kind of interesting. So mm. that's all I have uh, for this one. Do you have any other? Do you have any closing thoughts, comments? I think uh, I think Max Stirner is uh, is a philosopher that not a lot of people talk about, and maybe people should talk about more. Um, he he is an interesting character. Um, or his his philosophy is is interesting anyway, and um, and I think. You know, okay, I, yeah, I, I think I'm with you. I'm not, I'm not quite ready to call myself an egoist and, and get totally on board, but, um, I think he has, he, he at least understood that all the things that we tend to hold sacred in society are kind of just all made up. And sometimes you need to get back down to earth and talk about what's really going on. Yeah. Um, to make decisions. Absolutely. So I will leave the rest as an exercise to the listener. Absolutely. Well, in that case, philosophers. Philosophers. If you like the music in this episode, please check out Jippy on Bandcamp at jippy.bandcamp.com. Philosophers is supported by viewers like you. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, or a topic you'd like to see revisited in the future, please let us know by contacting us using the methods in the description, or in the comments below. Thank you for listening.